On today's episode of the Inspired Podcast, some of our topics include content related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and violence in our communities. While one of our goals is to empower our communities through healing and open dialogue, we understand that this content may be difficult for some to listen to. and welcome back to episode six of the Inspired Podcast. As usual, this is your host, Dr. Corey Steele, and I'm honored to be joined here today by American Indian Graduate Center alumna, Ty Simpson. As a direct descendant of Chief Red Heart and the Nares Tribe of Idaho, Ty takes great pride in serving her community as an organizer, activist, and advocate. In her indigenous language of Nimipu, Ty is the storyteller. Throughout her career, Ty has spoken on a variety of issues affecting marginalized communities, including race, missing and murdered indigenous women, and the intersections of oppression facing the United States, which can be found on Boise State Public Radio, TEDx Boise, and several news outlets. Ty's racial and social justice activism was first started while studying sociology and political philosophy and public law at Boise State University. She is an organizer for the Indigenous Idaho Alliance, which is the organization that drafted the proclamations for Indigenous Peoples Day for the state of Idaho and the city of Boise in 2018 and 2019. In 2020, the Alliance also helped draft HCR 033, concurrent resolution acknowledging missing and murdered Indigenous Peoples Day that passed in the Idaho legislature. So we wanna say welcome and thank you so much for sharing space with us uh, today, Ty. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for the work that you've done in Indian country and the work that you've done in your communities and um, helping just really create space for this work in multiple areas. Um, so, you know, I just want to offer you time. I know we did the, the kind of professional bio and things like that, but I wanted just to offer space and time for you to tell us about yourself and your background. Uh, thank you for the introduction. I'm happy to be here. Um, so in my indigenous language uh, of the Nimipu nation, I told you that uh, I am a Nimipu woman and as purse woman, I'm happy to be here. I um, am called the storyteller in my community and uh, I'm a descendant of Chief Red Heart, uh, right alongside uh, a whole long line of very powerful, courageous, equal parts love, equal parts fury matriarchs in my family. So I'm very proud of that as well. Um, I'm broadcasting from the uh, ancestral territory of the Niwa and Numu nations, commonly known as Shoshone, Bannock, Paiute and Yakima. also known as Boise, Idaho. And yeah, thank you. Um, I also identify as Black. I think that's important in some of these conversations. I don't want to claim one one side or one portion of my identity without naming the other, because they're both equally important in my work as a community organizer, uh, as an activist, and also as an advocate. So it's a combination of those three things that I hope um, allow me to be a strong champion for justice, equity, love, land back, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, all of the above, you know, all of this work is towards the revolution eventually. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think that the work that you have done over the last 
couple of years and things like this and the places that you've situated, even as you should situate your own identity, um, is, is critical to a lot of the work that we're seeing in, in our communities. And, you know, especially now more than ever, there's this really great focus on racial equity. You know, there's a lot of situations, there's a lot of things happening, uh, not just in Indian country, but across the United States that is focusing and really bringing racial equity to uh, to kind of like the forefront. Um, and so in the work that you do, how, how could we build upon this moment to empower and elevate our communities? Oh, that's such a great question and probably a whole TED talk. So let me see if I can be succinct. Uh, you're right. Like we are at this reckoning uh, of racial equity and justice in this country, because for so long, so many communities uh, that are black, brown and indigenous have been um, surviving and exercising an incredible amount of resilience in the face of oppression and settler colonialism. And now we've fought and fought through the generations and it's coming to a head, you know, like we can't, you can't continue to dehumanize entire groups of people without retribution, without, um, without recourse. And one of my favorite kind of lenses that I take in some of this work that I do is that we are so powerful in our ancestry, right? That even though our ancestors have journeyed several generations ago, that power and that medicine just compounds on itself, right? So now here we are seven and eight generations down the road from settler colonialism powered up by <laughs> generations of ancestors that kept fighting and kept loving and kept praying and dancing and singing and speaking our language. Like those things are really now just snowballed into the fact that we are not um, marginalized folks. We have been historically marginalized, right? We were not slaves. We were enslaved peoples. We were not, um, you know, we were imprisoned on reservations rather than like, you know, relocated. I, we have to use the really honest language about what happened. So using that language um, about what's happened to us, honoring our ancestors, you know, over the course of the generations, and then really now using that to create visibility and then amplifying our voices and our stories. So uh, it was really cool to hear you just flip into Cherokee to, you know, commentate our conversation today like that's that's really empowering for me and it's re rejuvenating and making me feel like I should be doing more with my own language like I want to be able to just flip back and forth like that and um and I think that's really crucial and cornerstone to who we are our indigeneity is couched in our language and in our land uh and it's about who who claims us and not what we claim and I think that's really powerful in the face of this racial reckoning right like we claim each other not only as Nimipu but as indigenous siblings um and so our indigenous sovereignty is collective across the country across Turtle Island indigenous is worldwide right so that's the parallel between black liberation and indigenous sovereignty that displaced Africans were also the back backbone of this country and when I say that, I'm saying Black Africans, those Africans who are displaced here were indigenous to their homelands in Africa. And so there's a lot of parallels between who they were in building this country and who we were as violently dispossessed, um, dehumanized groups of folks. So coming back together now, 400, 500, 600 years later, feels like this very powerful uh, stride 
towards collective thriving, towards collective liberation, because we can't go back, right? But moving forward then has us at the helm, has our stories at the helm. And I, and I really believe that language rejuvenation, cultural rejuvenation um, and collaboration is gonna be our, our, our breadcrumbs to get there. And, you know, I, I think as, as we've been talking, as we go through this, you know, you, you've mentioned story a number of times and the stories and, and the intersectionality of all these stories of not only our historical story, but our cultural stories, our language stories. Um, and, you know, you yourself are considered that storyteller amongst your community. You know, you focus on building community and amplifying the principle of protecting the sacred and social justice advocacy. Um, and you do that so well in so many of your talks and so much of the work that you do. What lessons or teachings um, can individuals learn from indigenous stories and how can they utilize them to work for equity? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, let me go, I'm gonna flip that question a little bit around storytelling um, and first name that uh, I am the storyteller, but the stories that I'm carrying are not mine, right? They're gifts from ancestors. And so the story that I'm living with my life is a gift that I'm pushing forward into the future for my descendants. So my entire approach to this work ideally is in a good way with a good heart so that I'm writing a good story for the future. And we're all capable of that as individuals, right? Like that's a very basic life lesson, a very basic way of knowing in a lot of indigenous communities that we are each our own storyteller and we have to give that gift to the future. So to answer particularly the question um, that you asked about what could folks learn from our creation stories, from our ways of knowing, I mean, there's so much there. And in our community, in Nimipu country, there's particularly Coyote or Itiye'e that is the main character of our lot, a lot of our stories. He's the trickster. Um, he's the main character through which we learn how to treat each other, how to build our relationship with nature, how to keep nature in balance. And of those, of those stories, the three things that I use as the tenants of my own life, right, always, always give back to the community, right? Um, I was in a conference recently where they talked about um, like a daily mantra, how have I served my people today? And I really feel like that's a very strong principle that we share across Indian country and that we can learn in so many of our creation stories. How are we taking care of each other today? Another piece to that is how are we moving through the world in such a way where we're not adversely impacting nature? Are we extracting from her? Are we taking too much? Are we too loud? Are we spending too much money, using too much gas, throwing away too much waste? Um, and so having, and it's exhausting, I'm not gonna lie, it is exhausting to really take that position as indigenous people, like where we are now living in a settler colonial society, still occupied by, by the descendants of our colonizers now trying to balance these old ways with the intersections of modernity and convenience and ease. How do we hold both of those things, right? And so it has to be enough that we're collectively being mindful. Like, are we doing our best to recycle? And then thinking about like big picture, China's not taking our recycling anymore. So it's just getting dumped somewhere, right? Like, so those are the multiple truths. Um, there's also this idea of, you know, while we are individually doing our best to um, 
minimize our footprint in the world? How do we do that on an individual level and on the macro and societal level that we're all collectively working towards that? And then this idea of like, how do we as a small revolution dismantle billionaires who are the biggest cause of carbon footprints in the planet? And then the third piece to that is like, how do we protect what's left, right? I am a proponent of decolonization and at the root of decolonization is returning lands back to indigenous people. Um, where we are rightly the stewards of what takes place on that land. We are the stewards of how resources are harvested um, rather than extracted from those lands. We have consent over how the water is being used and shared as a resource in communities. So there's really hard conversations that have to take place, but ideally telling these stories of who water is to us, not what water is to us, but who water is to us. And then there's the place of, um, you know, how do we then as a community leverage these resources or um, protect these resources in a way where our generations down the road can benefit them, even if it's at the expense of our own convenience or at the expense of our own ease or access. Um, there's no reason why um, resources should be depleted the way that they are. And so these creation stories, going back to our very basic creations of stories of how we build community and how we build a relationship with nature, those are the best and biggest lessons that we should be learning. And I, I, I mentioned this in our, um, in our, well, it's ours, uh, in my, our TED Talk, in my TED Talk, about um, really looking at the world in a different way, because we know that Western white settler colonialism that's based on Western white academia hasn't proven beneficial or safe or holistic enough for nature. And that's why we've got this constant cycle of damage to her now why we have climate change now, why we have economic and social and ecological injustice taking place now. That's a very long answer for a very short question, but I think that, and here's, here's the point that I'll underscore. Indigenous folks have lived on this planet for tens of thousands of years, 15,000 years, are some of the oldest artifacts and evidence of my people being on our ancestral homelands. That's 15,000 years of science, of balance, of peace, of shared resources, of healthy community building. And that's also 15,000 years of knowledge that should be influencing the way that we're moving now. Countries are failing after 250 years now. That's telling that the way that they're moving and operating in the world is not in a good way and it's not sustainable. So going back to, to these creation stories, going back to our old ways and finding applications for them nowadays, I think is gotta be, that's the real work, that's the real struggle, but that's also our journey towards revolution and liberation as well. Did that all make sense? <laughs> it, it did, and you know, as you were sitting there talking about it, you know, I, I know for me, I've never really, come to think of it in that way when you said, you know, nowadays we have countries being built up and then falling in 250 years versus, you know, you know as you were talking about your people's tricksters, I was thinking of, of our Katua tricksters and the rabbit, thinking of those stories and those lessons that have been passed down for generations and for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And those teachings that date back and those practices that date back and really um, 
the sustainability of our community-driven systems. And so I was like, I was like, wow, you know, I was like, okay, I, I did, yeah, you know, we've, you know, we're we're still because you know, even with my people, you know, we have treaties with other governments that predated the US. You know, we have we have treaties with other governments that predate the creation of the United States. And so when we think of it that way, you know, it's it's you're right, you know, our our old ways really are ways that have sustained us. Um, and we we know the power of them. We know the uh, the effects of them. And you know, you even talked about this because um, you called on non-native people to embody these old ways when you know doing things like voting, teaching, and, and just living in the world. Mm -hmm. um, could you would you be willing to maybe elaborate on that and like share some advice or best practices? to help people incorporate these principles into their daily lives. Absolutely. I love, there's a couple of things that came up for me in that. Um, I really love um, like Thrive Unlimited, right? Native owned organization um, that sells merchandise, but also is very um, social media progressive around indigenous issues. But there was a discussion on their web one of their socials, sorry, um, where they talked about indigenous women as matriarchs and not as feminists. And that was something I carry forward into a lot of my work. And when we talk about feminists versus matriarchs, right? Like we, in indigenous community, women are raised with responsibilities. We, there's an expected contribution that we make to the community because we honor who we are as women in the community, we're literally the foundation of so many indigenous nations across the country. I think 70% of our nations are matriarchal. And so what it means to be born a woman into a matriarchy is about our responsibilities and how we can best serve our community. There's never a conversation in indigenous communities about rights, right? We don't have rights because it's assumed that we're all taken care of. It's assumed that nobody's rights are infringed upon uh, in the same way we have, or we're seeing on the socio-political stage across the United States. Micro level in indigenous communities, we don't. Like we don't steal from one another. We don't harm each other. We don't make judgments or um, cast foul comments to folks who are just living their best lives. Like, it's just not the way I was raised. I don't see it in my grandmother. I don't see it in my own mother. I don't see it um, in Indian country. When there's a crisis, we come together without fail um, to support one another despite differences or uh, despite disagreements because we have a responsibility to take care of each other. In America, the United States has this very heavy, rugged individualism ideology. And that rugged individualism means I only care about me and mine and nothing else. I don't care about my neighbor. I care about my own success. Success is performative and defined by how much cash flow, what kind of car you drive, how big your home is, how green your grass is, how high your picket fence is, how many little uh, you know, golden doodles you have in the backyard. Like there's just these really obscure markers of success in American dreams and American individualism that really 
can only exist if you are dehumanizing or marginalizing another person. I will say that more clearly. The American dream only exists if somebody is exploited and or marginalized at the expense of your success. And that is that would never fly in our old ways, right? Nobody is ever left behind. Nobody is ever alienated. So that best practice then for non-natives is how are you showing up in community to be a good neighbor? making sure that folks have enough? How are you redistributing wealth? I know some people might be clutching their pearls right now, like, oh, that's socialism. No, that's just taking care of a community, right? Is wealth redistributed so that everybody has enough? Um, and then another thing that comes up for me um, outside of the rights versus responsibilities is this idea, the way that we treat children in my community. A lot of our... Um, a lot of our nations use a medicine wheel as a symbol of our spirituality. And on that medicine wheel, there is no beginning or no end. In my tribe, our ancestors and our babies are at the same point all the time on that circle. It's the beginning and the end at the same time. It's why in so many of our communities, elders, grandparents raise the babies. That's how culture and language is passed on. That's how history and ways of knowing are passed on. And because elders and babies are always connected on that circle, that means it's the beginning and the end at the same time. And it also means that babies are tiny elders, right? They have so much wisdom to offer us in the world. They show us what it means to be joyful all the time, to be curious all the time, to explore and be brave. And you think about that, babies are naturally those things until something happens to them, until they're dogmatized, until they're socialized to something else. But I've always loved this idea of really opening up the world, opening up ourselves so that we are learning from children as much as we try to program children. Like that's also a very American thing. Like kids are to be quiet, to be seen and not heard. Kids need to be this, that, and the other. We can't talk to kids about X, Y, and Z things. When really we're trying to assert that children know how to create and make their own space in the world. And that's not something that we do in the United States, right? Like that's not something that we nurture as a society of Americans. But I never wanna take that away. When I finally became an auntie, my brother had my babies for me. I don't have my own. Um, babies have so much to say when they don't actually have words. And I think that's my favorite part about babies is they're storytellers without actually having a language to convey their stories with. And I've always been fascinated, like what are they trying to tell me when it's just sounds and syllables? Like what is this really like energetic story they're trying to convey when they're not actually speaking English? Is it a story that an ancestor has told them and sent them back to us with, right? Like that's such a that's a very medical physical thing, but it also feels very powerful. Like they were the closest to the ancestors at one point before they journeyed back to us. And now they have all these stories, but not the English to tell us. <laughs> it's like a really strange uh, cycle of life, I think. But that I think is very practical application too. How our, our non-native neighbors creating intentional spaces for babies, toddlers, and young folks to engage in community building to engage in our relationship with nature. Are we making room for that? Or are we still just being ageist and assuming that children don't have autonomy or a voice? And that's not fair. Creator has shown us time and time again that every living creature has a voice and a place in this universe. And we have to respect and honor that voice in all ways. There was something else that came up for me in that as well, but I think those were the two main things. So I'll leave those alone. If something else comes up, I'll, I'll circle back to it. 
I don't know, just even this this very brief conversation we've had, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of connections and things that are being brought up in my own mind, you know, and when you talk about, you know, just not even having the English to produce some of these stories. We think about that. We think about how we use language. We think about how we determine language and how, you know, I, I think about that, that even when we tell these stories and we use our indigenous languages and we talk about the revitalization effort, um, that's a part of that social justice piece because our language tell those, tell those stories in a way that English sometimes doesn't do it justice. They provide us with that layer of understanding. You know, even if it's, you know, I, I, we, we said, and I, I've, I've talked with other people who might not fully understand Cherokee. Um, there's just this level of understanding or a sense of, oh yeah, when we begin to explain some of this terminology and the language. And, you know, I, I think about that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, those little little babies talking, what those, what those stories are, you know, I can all I could just see my nieces and nephews sitting there talking and trying to pronounce these words. And, you know, like, because sometimes I'll sit there and um, it just brought up a memory of one of my nieces and we were talking about something and she kept talking and, you know, what people will call that baby language. And I kept swearing I'd hear her say Cherokee words. I'd be looking at her like, who you been talking to? You know, we have, we have that. Yeah. Understand it. I'm like, who you been talking to? Wait a second. I love that. I always say, um, so part of social justice includes a facet of language justice, right? We entirely operate on this premise that English is a standard, but who says, who determined that? Who asserted that English is the only appropriate way for us to communicate in social justice spaces, in education spaces, in political spaces? The more I invest and nurture my own practice as a storyteller, the more I've begun to realize that English is not enough. It is not big enough. It is not encompassing enough. It is not worldly or spiritual enough to really grasp some, some of these, these things that we're trying to say. Like I can translate words with Taspa. I can translate words, Himyuma, the words that are just simply translated into creator and nature, but it's so much bigger than that. Just the word Himyuma encompasses like who I am in relation to creator and who creator is in relation to me. And then um, the way that we describe land and the way that we describe seasons, it's not as simple as fall and winter. It's, you know, when the deer loses her spots, right? When the fish are swimming up river in the springtime and it's usually one or two words, but it's descriptive of geography. It's descriptive of seasons. It's descriptive of our relationship to nature. and. English is just not capable of capturing that. And the other piece that comes up um, as far as English not being enough is uh, the way we describe kinship, right? Like why folks talk about like brothers and sisters and first cousins and second cousins and it's just not enough. Like when you're really trying to identify not just who this person is, but how much love and respect and honor is also in that relationship. Enim Katsat, my, my mother's mother, that is easily the most powerful position in a woman's life to be a grandmother. And grandma is just isn't enough, you know, Katsat, she is my Katsat, the Katsat, you know, like all caps, full stop. 
And that, um, we don't convey that well in English, you know, then you start to go into weird words like duchess and things like that. So I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Or even like describing the kinship that my cousins, some of them were raised as my siblings and there is no distinction. And um, I really, I really love our languages for that reason and how descriptive some of our words can be a uh, real quick side story because I'm a storyteller and that's who I am as a person. Um, I got to record um, a handful of aunties and grandmas as part of the Women Are Sacred Conference several weeks ago back in June. And there was one of these elders who's a Nishinaabe, and the way she said her name translates to when it's a cloudy day and the sun breaks through the clouds and the light that that makes. And like, that's describing exactly that light, exactly on a day like that with exactly the clouds in the sky. And that's what her Indian name was. That's what her spirit name was. And it was just so moving to me because in my brain, I can imagine exactly that day in Minnesota, you know, on the giant plains when the clouds are in the sky and hanging low and then the sun breaks through. I'm like, I know exactly who you are based on how you described your name and in your language. And it was beautiful. English is garbage in comparison, (laughs) you know, like, I almost feel like we grunt at each other half the time when we're speaking English, you know, (laughs) like it's so boring in comparison. And I don't know. I think that that's why I always say all the time, indigeneity is about our language and about our land. And our language was a gift from the land anyway. So it's, it's all full circle. It's all a relationship and English and Americanism just misses all of that relationship, which breaks my heart. You know, it breaks my heart for non-native sometimes that they don't have what we have as indigenous people. I think, you know, you, you've talked about some, some key practices and, and advices there, because, you know, you, you've done work, you've done this work in facilitating workshops, um, covering a wide range of topics, you know, including anti-racism and social justice. Um, but beyond just the advice and best practices, what are some of the key takeaways that you could share with those that are listening today? Because I guarantee you there are people listening that are laughing with us that are, you know, just saying, yes, yes, someone who said it, you know, but what are some of those key takeaways that you could share with our listeners to further empower them to fight and um, really, again, bring to light these issues regarding um, racial and social justice? Oh, those are, that's a great question too. How do we, how do we do better together? Right. Um, I'm a couple of these are going to come from my anti-violence work. Right. And when I talk about anti-violence, I'm talking specifically about um, domestic violence and sexual assault that takes place at ridiculously higher rates in Indian country. Um, In our old ways, the women used to get together and sow or gather or harvest. And in those spaces together, they would chat about who's who and who's marrying who and laugh and crack jokes about this person's dress or those person's moccasins and talk about this man hunting and what this other warrior provided for his wife and family. White folks in English would call it gossip. But in Indian country, it's not gossip, right? Like it's how we stay connected, how we stay up to date. It's our, you know, our news bureau, more or less, like all the aunties and all the grandmas know everything there is to be had in Indian country. 
And I remember being at sweat houses with some of my grandmas. In our community, we sweat by gender. So um, all the women will be together. And I remember the grandmas will talk about, you know, so-and-so messing around or this person being bothered. They would always use delicate language, but what they meant is that somebody was being assaulted, somebody was being violated, somebody was being molested, and they didn't use the appropriate English or the accurate English words for the violence that was taking place, but they were talking about it with all of these young women in that sweat house, with all of these young cousins, so that we could hear what was happening. And it was about making sure that we were safe. It was making sure that we were aware of who could potentially be dangerous to us. We don't do that enough now. Like it's evolved into really harmful, like tearing down behind the back, stabbing in the back sort of gossip. It's not gossip that keeps us safe. And I would caution us about moving into that toxic place, right? We need to have really honest conversations about violence that's taking place in Indian country. Why is it that tribal cops are nearly 40% of the instances of domestic violence in Indian country? Why is it that Indian girls before the age of 12 will have endured sexual violence? Those are the conversations that need to take place openly and honestly in these community spaces. It used to be gossip, but I promise you it's all about safety. It's all about ensuring that the community is kept whole. And then the next piece to that is that when somebody in the community uses violence or violates the community in some way, what are we doing to repair that relationship and what are we doing to help that person heal? Again, this idea of rugged individualism in America is about ostracizing and alienating these folks who suffer from addiction issues, who suffer from using violence, who suffer from trauma and from pain. Violence is a symptom of pain and pain is a symptom of trauma. So however that trauma manifests, whether it's addiction, drug or substance abuse, alcohol abuse, violence, that means that there's some traumatic healing that we need to do. And that can only be done in community. We have endured relentless and unimaginable violences in communities across generations, four or 500 years now. But that also means we're capable of healing in community. It is not our way to ostracize or alienate. It's our responsibility to create spaces for folks to share their stories of pain and trauma so that we can work towards healing. I'm not saying that this is easy. <laughs> I'm not saying that this is easy work by any stretch, but we are capable of indig as indigenous communities to do this. Um, and that actually brings me to these last two, two things. Um, how are we serving the community, right? I say that over and over and over again. Storytelling is a community building tool. Um, when we share stories, especially those stories that may be painful or shameful, we remove the pain and shame from those stories. We make room for others to share their stories as well. And the more that that has a ripple effect that way, the more ripples we create and more lasting change that that creates as storytellers. So I, I hope that folks take away that we are each our own storyteller. We are each gifted with ancestral wisdom and knowledge. And then we have to really live our lives in a way that tells a good story for the future. And sometimes that means telling a really hard story in our own lives. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And I have to tell those stories very often, regardless of how painful, so that generations down the road, they hear my stories with shock and with horror rather than 
with resemblance. Oh, I know what that's like. That's happened to me. I don't ever want anybody down the road for me to have to say that. And, you know, the other thing too, um, and this is kind of my last more joyful, empowering piece is Indigenous people are so capable of laughter and joy and, um, and healing um, in a way I've never seen. I've lived around the world. I've lived overseas for a great deal of my life. And to be able to see what Indigenous people are capable of in our healing spaces and our celebration spaces and our family spaces is really truly power, powerful. We're uplifting, we hold each other up, we keep each other humble. There's never anything so serious, we can't laugh at it, you know? Um, if you don't have a nickname, then your community doesn't really love you. You know, like things like that, <laughs> like just these important takeaways of our upbringing as indigenous folks that I think that we really need to lean into. No matter how hard something is, we, we have survived and we are capable of thriving because of our joy and our laughter and our healing and our old ways is where we can find a lot of our answers on how to be a people that thrive again. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Thank you so much, Ty. Um, you know, I, I don't think we could have ended this episode any other way. You know, as we, as we talk about, as we talk about how we begin to engage with our communities and promote these issues, just your words, I think ring true across not not just your own tribal communities, but across in the country. And so I just want to thank you um, for being here today, for sharing space with us today, for sharing story with us today. For us to be able, you know, just just to be able to share story today, you know, share story and, and how we can really work with our communities to begin elevating um, both racial and social justice even more. And so thank you so much again um, to all of our listeners. You know, I, I hope you got as much out of today's episode as I had. Um, you know, I know you again, you know, you know, you all can't see us. You can only hear our disembodied voices over Spotify or YouTube or wherever you're watching us, but are listening to us. Um, but you, you don't see again all the, the head nodding and, and the smiles and the laughing and the, and the agreement uh, uh, notions that we're making. And, um, and I know there, we got a lot out of this, so I hope you got a lot of this too. And so until next time, uh, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Still. Bye -bye.